The following program is sponsored by Evangelical Life Ministries. Welcome to Engaging Truth, the manifestation of God's Word in the lives of people around us. Join us each week as we explore the impact of His message of spiritual renewal, from the lesson of forgiveness forged in the crucible of divorce, to the message of salvation learned by an executioner from a condemned killer, to the gift of freedom found in the rescue of victims of human trafficking. This is God's Truth in Action. Welcome to Engaging Truth. This is Dave Schultz, your host for the, this opportunity this evening to talk one-on-one with someone that I've known for quite a while, but not seen for quite a while as well. Welcome, Danielle Tallon, to the microphone. Hello, thank you for having me. I'd like to begin with just something as simple as asking the question, who in the world is Danielle? Wow. Um, (laughs) Of course, that's always a difficult question, but um, aside from being a mom and a wife, um, I am a registered nurse who's worked mostly throughout my career um, in mental health, crisis mental health to be exact. So um, the worst of the worst, the sickest of the sick, um, the most emergent. Um, And that would be adults and children. And I've done that in Florida and in Texas. And it is something that I didn't plan on doing, but something that I was really, really led to do once I got into nursing. And I love it. So before the time which exists today, uh, when you're a a mom at home taking care of your family, um, you were the the, uh, intake nurse at in the psych unit at Bentop Hospital. What in the world does that mean? Uh, yeah, so um, in Texas, we have um, something called an EDO or an emergency detention order, right? So any patient that was an imminent danger to themselves or anybody else, right, risk to self or others, um, when they were placed on this status, they were brought in by law enforcement, and I was the lady who assessed them Um, calmed them down, medicated them, um, and uh, transferred them to treatment. So I got people directly off the street um, in all sorts of conditions um, and was able to stabilize them and then transfer them for um, longer-term hospitalization. Why is the mental health concern today more important, or at least seemingly more important, than it was just a few years ago? Um, I think there are a number of reasons. Um, I think um, there's a stigma involved in mental health. Um, I think there's a lack of resources. Um, I think there is a lack of uh, support. And I think that there is, um, in some instances, a lack of accountability. Um, And perhaps a little apathy in regards to um, people that are uh, sick and exhibiting really scary symptoms. It's almost like uh, we want to ignore it rather than participate in helping them function in society. Um, And I think the pandemic had a lot to do with it, but I think our current social state has a lot to do with it. There are probably a hundred valuable reasons um, for there being mental health issues, what would you say would be the top three or four 
issues that we know about that you had to face um, in your work as as uh, an intake director? Um, I received a lot of patients who were involved with drug and alcohol abuse. Um, that was difficult to deal with. So it exacerbated some already really bad symptoms. Um, we dealt with clients that were really pretty organically sick, like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and kind of out of it. Um, and what they hadn't been taught um, what were coping skills um, or how to be compliant with their medication, and they didn't have a lot of support. Um, and then we dealt with a lot of people that had mental health issues from um, abuse and neglect, especially children behavioral issues for a number of different reasons. Um, and, and so I think those are the three biggest things we saw, abuse, neglect, alcohol and drug use, and then organically sick people that are, don't have any support or unable to care for themselves and um, who didn't have any support system. They weren't being taken care of. I sense in conversation that you're very sensitive, but... A, a very concerned person that people are cared for with with um, a sense of compassion. Is that true? That's you? I, I would say so. <laughs> I would like to think so. I hope so because I believe that anybody, no matter how sick they are, um, deserves dignity and care and advocacy um, but with that uh, comes accountability, right? Um, I think what we've done is we've created a idea, system, society, I don't know what it is, in which we, when somebody's not managing their symptoms well or behaving erratically or anything, instead of um, holding them to task and encouraging them to function, uh, well in day-to-day -day life, we just ignore it and say, that's just them, that's okay, they're allowed to be that way, but what kind of quality of life are they having? And I think that's where my compassion comes in. For me, it's about somebody's quality of life and living the best life that they can um, with dignity. So. You were raised as I was, and I raised my children as Christ-centered people. In other words, uh, to learn to know that the compassion of Christ should be the way that we walk as well. Obviously, that would seem to affect your caring for people too, wouldn't it? Just just knowing what, what, what God has done for you, you in turn would turn and do that to others as well. Is that my sensing that correctly? Yes. Uh, that was something really, really big for me. Um, I have always felt the, the uh, impulse to serve, right? And from a young age, um, through my faith, I participated in, in a lot of servant activities, and that's the way that I show um, the gifts that God has given me through my service, through my compassion. Um, it's very important to me. Um, and it's... I have always said that you can teach somebody more about Christ by how you treat them than what you say to them sometimes. Exactly. Um, and that's not always the case, but I believe that 
we are supposed to be the light, right? We're supposed to be a true example of God's love, faith, and we're supposed to show that to others through our actions and our compassion. Um, I have a tattoo on my wrist that's a candle. Um, and I put it there to remind me um, that no matter how hard my days are, no matter how mean somebody is, um, that God gave me gifts um, to take care of people, to show them compassion and kindness. And no matter how bad those days are, that's still there for me as a reminder. You know that song, um, This Little Light of Mine, when we were little? <laughs> um, so I, I think what's really important is when you, when you find a profession that you love, right, um, that you use the gifts that God gave you to the best of your ability. Um, and I think that's an important message, too, especially when taking care of other people. Let me just tell the audience that this is Engaging Truth, and my guest for this particular program is Danielle Talent, who is now a stay-at-home mom, but she is a nurse, um, a nurse who spent many, many months and years as, a, as the intake nurse at the psych unit of Ben Taub Hospital. So we're discussing that and the implications of the mental illness that surrounds us today. So, Danielle, let me just kind of turn the corner a little bit. And to me, it seems to me that there is less and less government involvement in caring for those who are or who are diagnosed with mental illness. Is that true? Or am I just imagining that? No, that's true. And unfortunately, um, in most states, some of the larger providers of mental health care, right, are the um, incarceration systems, the jail systems, the prisons, things like that. So each state is a little bit different, but in Texas here, um, we have local mental health authorities um, that are funded by grants, um, and then we have private facilities. But it used to be um, that our sick and indigent were taken care of by the government, by churches, by things like that, but they are not anymore. Um, and so the facilities like uh, Ben Tom, Gulf Coast Center, any of your local mental health authorities are overrun. Um, and there is a high instance of recidivism, recidivism, excuse me, um, with patients that just kind of live in the cycle because they don't have anywhere else to go. There are no like state-funded group homes. There are no state hospitals anymore. There's only one left. Um, there's no place for them to go. Um, so yeah, aside from just giving people grant money, there are no places for chronically mentally ill people to go. And that's part of the problem, in my opinion. If not critical or dangerous to themselves or others, um, are they let go to just to shift for themselves then in the community in which they live? Yeah, unfortunately. So what typically happens is somebody is brought in for an evaluation. Um, if they meet the criteria in which we can hold them um, for observation, treatment, and et cetera, then we would, of course, admit them. But um, if they don't meet that criteria, and that criteria is very specific, 
Um, it's imminent risk to themselves or others. If they don't meet that immediate criteria, yeah, then they're just given resources, referrals. Um, the local MHMRs have tried um, to set up referral programs and things like that, but really there's not a way to track where they go. A lot of them just go directly back to the street or to an unsafe environment um, and, and don't really get help, which is why we have so much recidivism, which is why we see the same people over and over again because they're not really getting any help. Oftentimes, as, as we um, traverse the city streets of, of Houston, we see people on the corners, um, not with signs, but attempting to help other people washing their windshield or doing something maybe to make a buck. Um, it used to be, as I, as, as I seem to go back in my mind on this, um, I enjoyed stopping and, and, and giving something out to these folks, but anymore it's become, I'm become reluctant to do that uh, simply because of the fact that you don't know where the danger lies. And, um, talk about that a bit because of the fact that everyone is experiencing this very same thing. How can we be compassionate in such times? So it is a different time. You don't know who's, who's approaching. Um, if you're not well-versed in symptoms and signs, you could, you know, you could get into a situation where you're around somebody who's dangerous or very sick. Um, most of the time, um, the people that are, truly mentally ill are not going to be your beggars, right? Um, not that that's bad, but they're going to kind of be in their own little worlds anyway. Okay. Um, and, you know, when you do see them, it's okay to be compassionate and kind, but you also have to consider your safety. And what I would suggest that people do um, is each county in Texas and each state, if you see somebody is not doing well, uh, you can call the local mental health deputies and they can go visit the person. And it's not punitive. Um, and I used to go out with them when I worked in Galveston. We used to go do assessments on people. Um, and they just go out and talk to them and see if they meet criteria. And if they don't, they give them resources, a place to go for the night, a referral to outpatient stuff. So if you, if you do encounter somebody who you think might be in trouble or is mentally ill or, um, you know, it doesn't have a place to go. Um, you can certainly, in whichever county you're in, call the mental health, um, and they can certainly help. So it becomes hard then to advocate for them. So how then do you advocate to those unable to advocate for themselves? I mean, what is the process by which you do that? So for me, it's a lot of education. It's a lot of education involving symptom management, right? A lot of education for their families and a lot of offering of as many resources as we can. But again, because the system is broken, even if we offer resources, um, the only thing that we can do is, is treat them well and keep encouraging them, you know, when, when they come back. Um, so for example, if I have a patient who's very sick and we, and we get them stable and it's time for them to discharge, Right, from the hospital and they don't have a place to go well we can't keep them because they're not meeting that criteria anymore so what happens is they go to the Salvation Army or back to the street right so 
the way that I advocate for them is to encourage them to get benefits, encourage them to contact their family, encourage them to um, stay off drugs and alcohol, take their medicine. So it's all about education. And in order to get them, you know, to the best possible outcome, we have to tell them what that is. We have to give them expectations and behavior, expectations in, you know, you're going to have to take your medicine. You need to take your medicine. This is, you know, what helps you. Um, we have to give them guidance, things to do. So in my opinion, the best way to get somebody to um, get better is to teach them how to do it, teach them how to help themselves if they can. So really, even you run across the unwilling to be helped, don't you? Uh, a person, for instance, may um, may have been on opioid drugs for so long that that it has affected everything, and uh, they're unwilling now to be helped. Is there still a way to advocate for them? There is. It is being by being a pain in the butt. That's what I say. Um, you know. Uh, you never know when your message will resonate with somebody. May see, I've seen patients that I've seen for a hundred times, and that on that hundred and twentieth time of me telling them, "This is what I need you to do. This is what you should be doing for yourself. You need to take your medicine." You know, if you continue offering the support, you never know when they might take it. You never know when it might click for somebody. Um, so. In my opinion, advocacy comes with consistency, um, education, and, you know, not being mad at them. I mean, you can hold somebody accountable without being upset with them or punitive. So I'm just going to continue to practice what I preach and preach, um, you know, the things that my patients need to do to, to get themselves where they need to be. Um, and in my opinion, that's the best way to advocate. How do you how do you hold people accountable, especially with dignity, and and not enable them with uh, of their negative behavior? How, how do you do that? Hard. Um, so you know, like I said, the patients that I have seen before have experience with are. Oftentimes in states of mania, they're delusional, they're paranoid, they're on drugs or intoxicated, and sometimes they're not nice. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not people and it's not personal. So the only thing that I can do is keep my cool, um, understand that it's not personal, that it's bigger than me, um, and then... Uh, Expect them, everybody has the same set of rules, right? Expect them to behave in a certain way, okay? Even when I have to restrain somebody, even when I have to medicate somebody emergently, it still has to be a dignified process because it's not punitive. What we need to understand about mental health is that we're managing symptoms. We're not punishing them for bad behavior. So I think that mindset goes along. Danielle, give me a story um that was a uh, that that it just lightens your life when you think about it. Uh, someone 
who came that you saw originally in such a deplorable condition and somehow what you did and helped them to do uh, was transformative. Do you have a story like that? There's been a lot. I, I, you know, that's part of why I like to do what I can do because when somebody comes in and they are just out of their, um, you know, out of their um, usual state, they're out of their just hearing voices, and seeing things, so on and so forth. Um, and then two days later, they're calm. It's amazing to see. I have a ton of stories like that. Um, stories about kiddos like that. So I had a young lady in Florida who was 19. Um, she tried to, she smoked weed for the first time. Okay? And um, became psychotic. Um, and her parents weren't familiar with what to do. She started um, becoming paranoid that people were going to come and get her, paranoid that people were going to kill her. She became um, religiously preoccupied, so she had um, covered all the windows with foil and uh, put crosses all around the house because she was really scared. She was really scared that somebody or something was coming to get her. Um, and when we got her, she was a mess. She hadn't been eating. She hadn't been sleeping. Um, and we were able to get her... Um, medicated and stabilized and this was years and years and years ago but a couple years after we had her after she was stabilized um her parents were educated on how to take care of her um she was on medication consistently to manage her symptoms she was able to uh, graduate college and get a really good job wow that is yeah wonderful. so that was amazing to see because she was very, very sick. Danielle, if you had a magic wand to wave over the um, the medical community, especially that of the nursing community, um, what would you like to have that look like five years from now or ten years from now? Well, if I had a magic wand, I would probably ask for things, right? I would probably, um, I think the thing that, people who practice medicine are lacking is time. So I'd ask for unlimited time. Um, I'd, ask, I'd ask for unlimited energy. Um, it's tiring work, it's hard work, right? Our doctors and nurses get tired. Um, and then I would ask for unlimited resources as far as referrals or medication. Because oftentimes in the medical industry, we're more worried about the bottom line than we are about patient care. And I hate it. Um, so yeah, unlimited time, energy and resources, I think <laughs> would, um, would change a lot. Danelle, you have and, been a great guest. I just thank God for, for you and what you thank have done you. and your willingness to to come on to this radio, particular radio program and be heard in not only here but in many other places. Um, and I just want to say your unconditional love for those people seem to be very bright and you keep that candle lit all the time that indicates it's the light of Christ that really makes a difference uh, in their lives. So... I just want to say thank you for your willingness to be here and to talk about this. 
this program will go on the air and will not only be heard here, but well across the country and maybe in some other parts of the world as well. So let's just close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for Danelle. And thank you for what she has done and what she continues to do and what she will do again, not only with her family, but with those in the community of the mentally ill. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Come back to us again next Sunday night. Good night from Engaging Truth. Thank you for listening to this broadcast of Engaging Truth. Be sure to join us each week at this time. To help support our ministry, contact Evangelical Life Ministries, Post Office Box 568, Cypress, Texas, 77410, or visit our website at elmhouston.org, or find us on Facebook at Evangelical Life Ministries. Thank you.